Welcome to Mosaic. Welcome to Mosaic. If you're a guest, uh, my name's Aaron, and, uh, and I need to silence my phone. Actually, it just uh, dawned on me. It's just a matter of time, folks. Just a matter of time. Okay. Uh, but welcome to Mosaic. My name's Aaron. Uh, if you don't know, um, I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic here. And uh, welcome. Welcome if you're a guest. We're pumped that you're here. Uh, this morning, we continue a conversation we've been having um, as a community uh, in a series called Elements. And what we've been doing is looking at the core values that really propel us forward as a community. Uh, the things that really uh, shape who we are and, and what we do and how we go about doing them. And uh, in the first week, uh, we talked about our first core value, that mission is why the church exists. And this is really our core foundational core value, that we are here for a purpose, that God has us here amongst people who desperately need their creator to intervene in their life uh, in a meaningful way. Um, and so we are here not by accident and not to take up space, but we're here with a purpose, with a mission. So mission is why the church exists. The second week we talked about our second core value, that if mission is why the church exists, that love is the context for that mission. And we talked about God's design for community and the power of community, that you weren't created to do this alone, um, that doing it alone is darn near impossible and it's not nearly as beautiful, that there's power there. And then last week we talked about our third core value, that structure must submit to spirit. And we talked about how we structure ourselves as a people, as a community. And, and ultimately that it's, that it's all about people, it's all about you, and that oftentimes uh, for us moving forward, the, the strategy and the plan changes uh, as God moves amongst us in you and the people that are part of this community. It shapes the strategy, it shapes the plan. Uh, and so this morning we talk about uh, our fourth of five core values, our fourth core value, and that is that, that relevance to culture is not optional. Relevance to culture is not optional. Now, relevance is kind of an interesting thing to talk about in a space like this, uh, because depending on the culture that you're in, sometimes when you talk about cultural relevance and Christianity in the same sentence, uh, people start to get a little uneasy. And, uh, and I don't, some of us have maybe experienced this for ourselves, or you know people who have, uh, but some people, you, you begin talking about culture and about relevance, and you're talking about Christianity, and they actually start to get very angry. And I've sat down with people who have very... Uh, very angry, very harsh, very strong feelings towards this idea of being culturally relevant and being Christian at the same time. Uh, because for many of them, they bear the scars of, of what is in actuality a very shallow, a very cheap faith um, that at times seem to be peddled by leaders that become maybe more interested in things like style than they do with things like truth and love and compassion. Right, the, the people that have, uh, and leaders and, and even churches that have come to understand a relevance to culture being about being cool or being hip or being trendy. Uh, and the result is often disastrous. Right? Other people, you talk to them about this idea of being culturally relevant and they start to get very uh, uneasy. They start to get a little bit nauseous, uh, maybe even a little bit embarrassed as images come to mind of just this whole idea of being culturally relevant going terribly wrong. And, and the road of of modern Christianity is littered with very awful examples of what it means to be culturally relevant, often embarrassing examples. And so thanks to the World Wide Web, a lot of these examples are forever documented for us on things like YouTube and Google. And so this morning, to begin, to give us a little context for this conversation, we thought it would be fun to share together uh, some of the most embarrassing examples of culturally relevance uh, cultural relevance gone terribly wrong. So, am I blushing? Uh, it's embarrassing, isn't it? It's almost painful to watch. Uh, but some great examples of cultural relevance gone terribly, terribly wrong. I think part of uh, growing up and maturing, by the way, is being able to laugh at yourself 
And when you're Christian, you've got to be able to laugh at yourself because you're associated with stuff like this. <laughs> it's healthy for us, I think. You know, but so many great examples of what often ends up happening when we come to understand relevance as being cool or being hip or being trendy uh, is that we end up setting up for the wrong thing and, and embarrassing ourselves. I mean, have you ever been around somebody who tries so hard right, to be perceived as cool? Right? It's, it doesn't matter if they're in middle school, high school, or 50-something. There's one in almost every crowd. Right? It's that person on the fringe uh, who sees this kind of insider circle, and they want so badly to be there. And so they just work so hard to be perceived by the people on the inside as being worthy of being there. Right? But the people who work so hard to be cool and hip and with it are oftentimes the people who just aren't. You know? And they try so hard. And, and it's like the harder they try, the more embarrassing it is. And everybody seems to see it uh, but them. And uh, we've, all known, we've all known people like this. And, and many of us have known Christians like this. Uh, and even churches like this. Uh, but at some point along the way, when you set out and you come to understand relevance as being cool or hip or trendy or, or whatever it is, and you set out to be that person or to be that organization or whatever it is, right, somewhere along the way we lose, we lose our voice. Right? We lose our credibility. Uh, we lose our authenticity. Um, and somewhere along the way we end up losing ourselves. Um, but as we talk about this, this core value that relevance to culture uh, is not optional, um, what we're not talking about is being a very cool, hip, trendy church full of cool, hip, trendy people. Now, although I will share with you, last week I, I heard a story um, from a pastor friend of mine in Omaha who sent a couple friends to come check out Mosaic. And uh, they came, uh, they left, and they called him, and he let me know this last week that, that, uh, that they told him that they had no idea just how cool this church was, and that they were not nearly cool enough to be here. They had no tattoos, their ears were engaged out, they don't have hip clothing. So apparently, just so you know, you're very cool. Apparently, yes, too cool, in fact, as you'd have it. Uh, but that's, that's, that's not the goal, right? And, and that's really, I mean, that's what happens. That's what cool is, is it's so relative, it's so subjective. You succeed in the eyes of some while failing pretty epically in the eyes of others. Right, that's, but that's not what, what cultural relevance is. It's not about being cool, hip, trendy. Relevance is not about being cool. Relevance, relevance is about being understood. Relevance is about being understood. It's about, it's about speaking a language and embodying a message in such a way, right, to remove cultural barriers, right? It's about, it's about living life in such a way and being a people that step into culture, that it can be, that it comes alive for those who are there, that they can understand it. It's speaking that language, it's embodying that, that message in a way that is, is faithful uh, to that culture. Um, you see, while we can make the mistake on the one hand, uh, of coming to understand relevance as being hip or cool or trendy. Oftentimes we can make the reverse mistake, right? We, we can overreact and actually fail to give culture the weight that it actually deserves for us in our faith. What ends up happening sometimes is, is we make this very huge mistake of overreacting to all these embarrassing examples um, that we actually can end up coming to ignore culture or, or end up opposing culture, right? And concluding that... Uh, you know, that, that culture is really not important to our faith. That has very little bearing. That's something to be ignored. It's something to be opposed. But the reality is, as we look to the scriptures, that nothing could be further from the truth. That culture is incredibly important. And that it should shape the way that we live our lives. It should shape the way that we do church. Uh, it should shape a lot of things. And so, this morning, what I want to do is, is I want to, uh, to continue in the passage of scripture that we began in uh, last week. And this is one of my, my favorite passages uh, of scripture. And, and it should 
it profoundly shapes us as a community, and, and it should profoundly shape the way that we live our lives. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, we've got Bibles in back. Just raise your hand. Um, and somebody will run and get one for you. Uh, if you have a Bible or if you're using uh, the, the smartphone app that we use, Uversion, um, where we're going is Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And as we talked about uh, last week, what, what's happening right now is we're very early in the movement of Jesus. And, and Paul's been moving from culture to culture, from city to city, from people to people. And, and God has been doing uh, this amazing work, the, the form and expression of his ministry is constantly adapting and morphing and changing, and God is changing lives uh, like crazy. God is doing something pretty incredible. Uh, but along the way, there's uh, been some pretty significant uh, uprisings, some, some people that are pretty hostile to what's happening, which is, which is pretty normal, uh, as it would turn out. And so these, po- these people began following Paul from city to city and beating him repeatedly. Uh, within an inch of his life at times, and, and he's been imprisoned, and, and riots are breaking out in some of these cities. Uh, and so Paul's in rough shape, and his friends pull him aside and say, dude, you need to get out of here. You're going to die. Uh, so you need to go to Athens. Go to Athens. Go to the city. Keep your head low. Heal up. Rest up, and we'll send for you when things are safe. And so Paul lands in Athens. And at this particular time, Athens is the place to be. It is the city among cities. At this particular time, Athens had more uh, that was splendid in architecture, uh, more that was brilliant in science, and more that was uh, beautiful in the arts than any other city in the world, and and possibly as much as every other city combined. Um, At this particular time, uh, you know, Athens was greatly distinguished for uh, the celebrity of its schools of philosophy. So, so people that we know, people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, they're all from Athens, right? People that shape uh, a lot of what we do today. So these are, it is a huge player, and the people are very, very proud of this. It's a very cultured, it's a very cultured city. They're at the head of the literary world. Its arts and learning were celebrated everywhere. Uh, the Athenians were a very intelligent, very intelligent people, and they were very proud of their, their accomplishments um, their education, and their prominence in the world at this time. They're very proud people. If, if at this particular time in his, history, if we were to look at the world and it was kind of represented by the U.S., in many ways Athens is, is Los Angeles, Seattle, Austin, New York City combined. This is a place to be. It's a great place for Paul to be, to spend some time, to see the sights, to tour the city, to rest up, to heal up, and to keep his head low. But as we talked about last week, Paul can't do that. He's walking so closely uh, with Jesus, that, that his heart is beginning to be aligned with God's. And the things that break God's heart are beginning to break his heart. And the things that God cares about is beginning to shape the things that he cares about. And so as, as he's walking through the city, he's seeing, he's seeing shrine after shrine of all these different gods. And he's seeing people who are hurting and calling out to gods uh, that are not the one true God, gods that cannot help him. And so his heart begins to break for this, and Paul can't keep to himself. And so he begins to share and part of, understanding, part of understanding a culture is to know, to know its story, right? To know the story of its people. And what ended up happening is 600 years before Jesus stepped onto the scene, uh, there had been this plague in Athens. And, and it started very small, and then it just it became epidemic. And it began killing thousands and thousands of people. And people panicked. And they got very religious. And, and they, they concluded, many of them, uh, that the gods were angry. The, the gods were punishing them, that they had missed gods, uh, that they hadn't sacrificed enough, they hadn't done enough good things. And so what they ended up doing is they started building shrines. And one of the things they would actually do is they would let the sheep go throughout the city. And so they'd bring in a herd of sheep, 
And if a sheep came to stop at one of the shrines, uh, they would come to understand that, that they needed to sacrifice that sheep to that God, that that God was calling that sheep there. Uh, but the thing about sheep is sheep are dumb, right? They're a very stupid animal. And, and so what ended up happening is they'd just stop anywhere, right? They'd go on somebody's lawn and start eating the grass and stop next to a house, or they'd stop in the middle of the street. And the Athenians would think, oh, we missed a God. And so they'd build a shrine. And so ancient scholars would actually joke that there was, it was easier to find a God in Athens uh, than a man. And so there's all these shrines. It's, it's, from a Christian perspective, right, this is a very idolatrous city. And this is what Paul is walking through as he's seeing all these shrines. His heart is breaking. It says that he's so unsettled that he begins to go uh, to the synagogue and then to the marketplace to share with anybody who happened to be there. And so you might think, we might even think that in a culture like this that Paul would, would set up camp, he would be very angry, he had some very strong words like the prophets of old, that he would unleash a fury of words of, of anger and um, of legalism, of judgment, pointing to how, how wrong they were, how right he was, but that's not what we end up finding in, in Paul at all. We find that Paul is moved to compassion. And we're told that while he's in the marketplace, uh, he begins talking to uh, some philosophers, some, uh, some uh, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and they're very interested and what Paul's saying. And so they invite Paul into his space, or into their space. And Paul steps into the Areopagus. And this is a really big deal. Because right? we're in one of the most influential cities in the world. And this is, uh, one, this is the Supreme Court of Athens. Right? This, is, this is one of the most, by many accounts, one of the most celebrated tribunals in the world. These are the gatekeepers to the city. And if you wanted to lead, if you wanted to rule, if you wanted to teach something in the city, if you wanted to start a religion, anything of that, they needed to sign off on it. So these are powerful, powerful men. And they're inviting Paul into their space to share with them about Jesus. So before we jump in, I want to ask you a question. Right? Put yourself in Paul's shoes. How would you handle yourself? Knowing what you know about the city, right? knowing what you know about the people, uh, how would you go about this? What kind of language would you use? What kind of tone would you use? Imagine for a second you were invited into one of the most powerful circles uh, in the world. Right? Maybe that's the Oval Office. Right? And they've given you a voice into their life. You are moved uh, because you've seen oppression and you've seen people who are suffering and, and you've seen this idolatry and now you're getting to talk to the people that are largely responsible for that. People that you profoundly disagree with. And maybe, if you're, if you're really honest, people that you don't really like. Right? And now you're stepping into this circle. How do you handle yourself? What, what, how do you share this message? Right? This, is, this is where Paul's at. So beginning in verse 22, this is what it says. It says, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said this. He said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And I love this. Like I find this so incredibly profound. Knowing what we know about the city, and knowing what we know about why Paul is here, and how he's been moved, and how frustrated he is by what he sees Paul, we would think that maybe Paul would just unleash these very harsh, judgmental words, that he would set himself against these people and point to the fact that he believes that he's right and they're wrong and that their convictions very much oppose one another. But that's not where Paul starts at all. Paul starts with being kind. He starts with a mutual respect. He starts by paying them a compliment. I love that. He says, men of Athens, I see 
that in every way you are very religious. He's acknowledging their spiritual zeal, even though it completely conflicts with his own personal beliefs. Right? He, he's applauding them. He's saying, well done, bravo. I see that you are very zealous in your worship, that you take your faith seriously, that you are a very spiritual people. I commend that. Right? That's where he starts. And, and, and I love that. And I think it's so profound. And maybe because for most of my life, for much of my life, and, and I often continue to see, uh, what I continue to see is so antithetical to that. You know, I, that's not, this isn't the kind of tone that I see modeled for us sometimes. Um, I was working down, uh, as we were beginning, like, to fundraise and to gather a team to start this, uh, I was working at Jimmy John's downtown and delivering sandwiches freaky fast. And uh, I liked it. Yeah, to be honest, it was a fun job. It was a cool crew of people. Um, it just tends to draw people that are in heartache and crisis um, and people that, wouldn't, most of them, wouldn't step in here on a normal Sunday morning. And so I really enjoyed it, and, so I, and I took it very seriously and, and just started loving on those guys and being a normal guy, and, uh, but also being very open about my faith when the opportunity arose. Um, and it got to the point where I was having uh, spiritual conversations almost every day, right? Because these guys figured out that even if they never believed as I believed, uh, I was still going to be there. I still liked them. I wasn't going anywhere. I respected them. I loved them. And, and so it was really cool. So these conversations are happening, and we're moving forward, and then uh, inevitably... Uh, almost, it almost seemed at a strategically horrible time, some guy would show up on the corner with a big cross and some tracks and begin to just shout at people as they walk by. Right? Angry words. Uh, very condemning words. Um, and and you, could see, you can see you know, on people's faces how it's received, how it affects people. Right? And, and after a while, it's, ama- it's amazing. You know, we, we'd sit outside the window and I'd watch people and, and they'd literally take like three more crosswalks just to avoid this guy. Yeah, and as a crew of people. Because uh, they didn't even want to walk by him. Nobody's, right, they're not listening. It, it's causing more damage than good. And the people at, at Jimmy John's would inevitably ask, like, hey, what do you think of this guy? You know, is this what you believe? You know, is this, is this what it means to be a Christian? And it created great opportunities, but there's so much animosity. And I wish I could say it's an isolated incident, but I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had, you know, over coffee or over dinner with people who just seem very angry. Right, who set themselves uh, opposed uh, to the culture, it seems, and, and everything that's not overtly Christian is something to be fought against. And they're angry at the liberals, and they're angry at the media, and they're angry at pop culture and what they're hearing on the radio. Angry, angry, angry. Right? And it just seems they're looking for a fight, and they think that they're in a fight with everybody. Right? But that's completely opposite of what we see Paul doing here. Even though he's arguably in a much more hostile environment with people that are blatantly uh, wrong in his eyes. But he begins by paying them a compliment, right, by building a bridge. Um, he begins by, by acknowledging their humanity, that they're worthy of, of respect, they're worthy of love, that, we're, that we might be very different, but that the city that you live in is worth my time, it's worth my attention, and I've, I've paid attention. Right, and the second thing that he does is he begins to speak in a language that is relevant to them. Right? These, guys, these, are, these guys are from the city. He knows exactly the shrines they're talking about. This is their home. This is their turf. This is their city. And now he's going to begin to talk about faith in a language that, it, that they can understand. He's established this mutual point of connection, and now he's going to use it to begin to talk about Jesus. And what he's doing, by the way, is, is basically uh, what it says in 1 Peter three fifteen through 16. And I love this passage. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 
do this with gentleness and respect. And, that, and that's, what, that's what Paul is doing here. He continues in verse 24. And this is what he says. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. He probably said this inside one of those temples or standing right next to it. He does not live in temples like this, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men. We are, we are brothers in humanity. And he did this, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. He's saying, you are not here by accident, that you have been placed here by God in this place for such a time as this. And, and what, this, what this means for us as followers of Christ, as a community, as individuals, is that there are people that God has placed all around us who are groping to understand who God is. And that they are not here by accident. And we are not here by accident. There are people that God has strategically placed all around us, right, in our natural spheres of influence, people who are our neighbors, people who are our classmates, our co-workers, our family members, um, people who are our roommates. Uh, and they're there for a reason, that they have a destiny, and that you have a destiny, and that the two are not separated from one another, that you are there, they are there for a purpose. Verse 27 says that God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What an incredible statement. What an incredibly profound truth that each and every person on this planet, both now, both in the past, in the future, are not here by accident, that God is here, and that he has placed us here in this moment, and they've placed those in our lives here now so that they could have the optimum opportunity to come to know God, to reach out for him, to find him though he is not far from any one of us. And, you know, every once in a while people will ask, you know, what about, what about people who are, uh, they live in some isolated jungle, right? Some remote area, and in their entire life they don't get to hear the name of Jesus. Are they without hope? Right? And, and that's, it's a good question uh, in some ways, you know. But one of the things I love about this passage of Scripture, and the many like it, is, is that it, while it speaks to our responsibility here, Right, to, to embody and to share the message in the context of the culture in which we live. It also speaks to God's intent, right, that God desires that all men, all women, would come to know him, that he has placed us exactly where we are, we are at to give us the optimum opportunity to come to know him, right, to awaken our soul for its longing for its creator and to create opportunities to come to know him. Right, I find a tremendous amount of peace in that, right, knowing that nobody's here by accident, and that no person, no matter where they are, no matter where they live, no matter when they live, uh, is forgotten. That God has them there for a purpose. And at the end of the day, trusting that, you know what, if that's God's intent, that he desires for every man and woman to turn to him, to know him, and he's placed them there for that very purpose, that things are going to be okay. That he's got it figured out. And another thing, by the way, that it means for us is is that as we seek to live our faith out amongst people who may not know God as we do, and as we pray for them, uh, we're never bringing Jesus to people. You know, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but at different times in my journey, I felt a tremendous amount of pressure as if it's my job to bring Jesus. Or you, or you hear people who are going overseas, and they say, we're bringing Jesus to India. You know, the reality is that if Jesus isn't there, uh, we're in trouble, right? 
the reality is that God's already there, that he's not far from any one of us, and that when we step into opportunities to live out our faith, to share our faith, that God's already there. He's already been interweaving conversations and experiences, even, even taking experiences like crisis and use them for good. That he's already been there. And perhaps one of the most powerful things we can do is not uh, just to try to convince people or put all this pressure to, to do whatever, but rather to just help them begin to see how God is already a part of their story. How he is not far. And that he's already at work there. But then Paul goes even further. Then Paul steps out even further to meet them where they're at, to speak a language they can understand, to meet them on their level. And verse 28 says that, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, I love this. Uh, and this quote is from a guy named Epinemides, and, and there's a quote right before that from a guy who came about 100 years after him. And, and one of the things I love is, you know, these guys were philosophers. They were artists. They were musicians. They were songwriters. And one of the things he's quoting here is that we are his offspring. And now remember for a moment, they're not talking about Jesus. You know, they're not talking about God. We're in Greece. We're we're in Athens. Right? So who do you think that's talking about? It's talking about Zeus. All right? This This is a poem. This is a worship song to Zeus. And Paul is quoting it as he begins to talk about Jesus. Right, and what he realizes, and, and what Paul almost intuitively seems to understand and impacts for us elsewhere, is that there are things in every culture that are useful for beginning to, to speak about Jesus and begin to share about Jesus. Right, he's, he understands that there are things in Athenian culture that are true, that are good, that are beautiful. Right, and so, so rather than mindlessly attacking culture, or rather than uh, just ignoring culture, Paul is now beginning to talk about Jesus in the midst of their culture. He's talking about it in a way that they can better understand. He's seeking to leverage culture, not to ignore the truth, not to water down the truth, but actually to make the truth come alive for them in a very unique way. And I love that. It says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. It's Jesus. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So now, Paul has, has built a bridge. right? He, he's earned his voice. He's trying to make it come alive for them, but now he's really laying it out there. right? And, and, and he's saying, look, there, there, is, there is one God. Right? And serving him requires repentance, and it, it requires life change. And there will be a day of judgment. And Jesus, Jesus is proof of all these things. And it tells us when he shares this, right? He lays the gospel out there. And it, it, it tells us that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And a few men became followers of Paul and believed And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so so we find that, you know, as Paul shares the gospel, uh, that people respond in one of three ways. Either they're defiant, they're curious, uh, or they they convert, right? And so either they're defiant, and these are the people that they don't want to hear any of it, right? Don't give God a name. Like, we can just agree that there's maybe some higher power, but don't you dare talk to me about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. What you believe is cool for you. What I believe is cool for me. Just kind of get on my face, right? There's some of that, absolutely. 
right? There's people that are curious, right? You say, you know, it's interesting. I'd be willing to talk more about that, you know? Let's grab a coffee. Let's grab a beer. Let's talk about it. Do you have any books maybe that I could read? Any, any things that you would, uh, you know, that you would recommend? Um, I have some questions for you. It would be cool if you, you know, we talk about those. Uh, and then there are people who God has orchestrated circumstances and conversations and brought them to the place where they're ready, right? Joining God in what he's, he's already doing. And we find out that in Paul's story that one of these people is a guy named Dionysius, and he is an, a member of the Areopagus. This is a powerful man, an influential man, in one of the most influential cities in the world. And because of one man's o- obedience to God's call in his life, God moves, right? And another woman comes to uh, faith called Damaris, and a number of other people, and a church is planted in the city of Athens, and this movement is begun. And we find out later in, by church history that Dionysius is actually murdered. And uh, people don't murder you, you know, unless something is happening that they don't like. And so this, this movement was begun, all because one man cared enough about his city, to cared enough about the people around him to go to where they were at, right, to speak out of authenticity, but in a way that was relevant uh, to their lives, uh, in a way that they could understand. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't about Paul, right? It wasn't about Paul's preference. It wasn't about what is easiest for Paul. It wasn't about uh, the way that he would prefer to live his life or, or the culture that he prefers. He steps in because it is about the people all around him that God has placed there. And what we find about Paul, as, as he moves from people to people to people, to culture to culture, that the style uh, of ministry changes, the expression of his faith actually changes. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 9 is this. It's 919, 1 Corinthians 919, I love this. And here we're going to get, hear Paul actually unpack really what it means for him as he moves from culture to culture. It's like his philosophy of faith and ministry. And he says, though I am free and I belong to no man, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not, from, oh, I'm not free from God's law, uh, so as to win those not having the law. He says, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And so what we find is that part of following Jesus, part of being a light in the darkness, part of our faith, Right, is, is realizing that we have been entrusted with an unchanging message, right? An unchanging message that reflects an unchanging God. But we have been called to live out that message and to share that message in a constantly changing world. Right? We have been called to hold our message, in a sense, with this, this closed fist, right? It doesn't change. But we've been called to share that and to live that out in a culture that is constantly changing, constantly evolving, constantly morphing. And it requires that our, the expression of our faith, the expression of our min- ministry is constantly changing and evolving and morphing. And, and what that requires of us is, is that part of being Christian then means that we're not just students of the Bible, right? But that we're students of culture. It means that we should not just, we're not just called to understand what the scriptures have to say, but we're called to understand the context in which those scriptures, the truth of them, are to be lived out and to be shared. It means that we can't just know God's word, but we have to know our city. We have to know its pulse. We have to know the people. And, and so this is our city, right? We need to be a people that get out of our houses, get out of our first spaces and these comfortable places and walk the city and know the people. And in Lincoln, there are, there are a number of cultures and subcultures represented, right? And the reality is, is each one of those 
need people who have the courage to step into them, right, and to ask the question, what does, this cur- what does this culture need to begin to connect to Jesus Christ? What kind of person does it need? How does the message need to be contextualized? How does it need to be shared in a way that's appropriate, right, in a way that removes cultural barriers? And Christianity, organized Christianity, can be a huge cultural barrier, right? One of those cultures um, in Lincoln that comes to mind is, is the bike culture, Right? Lincoln has a thriving and growing bike culture, and, and city planners are allocating more and more money towards developing this culture. Right? We are on the bike trail. Right? We, the, the bike culture needs people who say, hey, this is my people. This is my culture. What is it going to take for the gospel to take right here? What is it going to take for these people to begin to connect to Jesus? Right? We need people in, in the, the local music and arts scenes, right? people in entrepreneurial networks, right? young professional groups. Uh, for young professionals, home brewers, right? There's, a home, there's an underground home brewing uh, culture in Lincoln, whether you knew it or not. There's so many cultures. And the beauty of it is it's going to look a little bit different for me than it's going to look for you. And there's beauty in that. There's beauty in that. And the thing is, is the better that we come to know our city, right, the more connected we are to its people, the more we begin to contextualize our message, uh, not only does this begin to grow our faith, but it becomes, we, we become so much more effective uh, at living it out and sharing it. Right? That's, what it that's really what it means to, to follow Jesus here and now, that we have been entrusted with an unchanging message, but called to an ever-changing world. And we're not opposed to it, right? We're not, we don't ignore it, but we acknowledge it. And we move forward intelligently, intentionally. So for us as a community, by the way, as a church, what that means is that mosaic is going to change. Right? And, and to be honest, I love this. I love what we have going on. But it means that as we move forward, uh, we're going to constantly have to recreate ourselves. It's not going to look the same now as it does in five years. Right? Ten years from now, it's going to look different than it does. It's going to require that we're constantly taking risks and changing, evolving, morphing, recreating what it means to be a part of Mosaic. Right? We must continually ask, hey, you know what, not what kind of church do I want, but what kind of church does our city need? But more importantly than this, is what it means for us on an individual level. As you look around at, at the people in your life, or as you look around at the people that God has placed in your life, some of these will be very natural spheres of influence for you, right? Friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, club members, roommates, you name it. The question that we need to be asking, right? is this. As we talk about relevance and culture not being optional, the question that we need to ask is what kind of life do I need to be living for Jesus to begin to connect with these people? Right? What kind of life do I need to be living for these people to begin to connect with Jesus? What kind of language do I need to be speaking? Right? Without compromising my faith, of course, what, what kinds of things do I, I need to be doing? What is it going to take as I look at this subculture, or this subculture, or this subculture, what does it mean to follow Jesus within that subculture? What do those people need to begin to see Jesus and to begin to understand Jesus in a way that is culturally appropriate to them? Let's pray. Father God, you know, I just want to thank you, God, for giving us the freedom to live out our faith in a number of different ways. And thank you for the, the freedom to run 
with our faith into spaces that, that are different and that are unique, spaces often that, that we enjoy that are a natural fit for us. I thank you for entrusting us with creativity and to begin to, begin to, to take that message into the circles in our life where we have not seen the movement of Jesus lived out well. And God, I, I pray for an awareness. God, that you would help us to see those circles of influence that are already there. And God, that you would begin to see it, to give us eyes to see those that are around us, those, those cultures and subcultures that maybe we are being called to engage. God, may we be a people, God, that follow you out of the safe places of our faith and into the margins to the people who have been forgotten and missed. God, I, I thank you that part of following you and worshiping you does not require that we oppose culture that is not overtly Christian. And that it doesn't mean that we are to ignore the culture that's there. God, I thank you uh, that we get to take the, the message about who you are and to begin to live it out uh, in all different ways that are so unique to many of us. And Father God, I ask for courage to do that. Ask for courage for us as a church as we move forward in the future to not just fall in love with this space and how it is now, but to have the boldness and the faith and the courage to, to blow it all up when it needs to be blown up so we can recreate what this city needs. God, we love you and we ask for wisdom and discernment as we begin to, to ask ourselves as individuals and as a community what that looks like for us. God, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing, what you've already done. And looking around at this room, what you're doing in the lives of people and all these people you've brought together, God, you're moving. You are undoubtedly not very far from any one of us. Help us to see you and to join you in the work that you're already doing in the lives of those around us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name.